This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report on RN. Mr Morrison's behaviour was extraordinary, undermined our parliamentary democracy, and he does need to be held to account for it. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese speaking after the release of legal advice from the Solicitor General. Now, that advice examined decisions by the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison to secretly appoint himself to five ministerial portfolios. UNSW Professor George Williams is a leading constitutional lawyer. He joins me now. Uh, George Williams, what was the specific question that the Solicitor General was asked? And in a nutshell, what conclusion does the Solicitor General's advice reach? Well, there's only one question that the Solicitor General was asked, and that is, was Mr Morrison validly appointed to administer the Department of Industry, Science and Energy and Resources on 15 April 2021. And of course, that was just one of the ministries that Scott Morrison was appointed to. And if you like a test case, and in short answer, the Solicitor General said, yes, he was validly appointed. So as a matter of law, the appointment was effective. But of course, it goes on in many pages to explain both why that is the case and more broadly to say that even if this is lawful, it does fundamentally undermine many of the most basic assumptions of how our system of government is meant to operate. Yeah, it is. It's a 25-page or 29-page um, advice. Let's talk about both the findings and the recommendations contained in that advice. Uh, first of all, um, what did the Solicitor General have to say about the legality or the validity of Scott Morrison's appointment? Well, and the answer that, yes, it was valid simply came as no surprise, and that's because there are so few laws in this area. In fact, the only relevant law is Section 64 of the Constitution. It says the Governor-General may appoint officers to administer departments of state, and that's what the Governor-General did. We've seen the paperwork, and in this case, the Governor-General acted on the advice of the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison himself, and that was a legally valid way of appointing him to those positions. There's no other statute that requires any other steps to be taken. There's no requirement in the Constitution or elsewhere that it be made public. So as a matter of law, it fulfilled the form and uh, it legally satisfied that, leaving uh, no legal questions to answer, but simply some larger questions about the wisdom and good sense of doing this. Well, I think um, the way the Solicitor General put it was, by not telling Parliament, the public and other ministers, this was inconsistent with the conventions and practices that form an essential part of our system of responsible government uh, prescribed in, in Chapter 2 of the Constitution. Let, let's hear uh, the spin that, that, that the Prime Minister uh, Albanese uh, put on this. We have a Westminster system of parliamentary democracy that relies upon, relies upon conventions, it relies upon accountability and checks and balances in the system. And those checks and balances have been thrown out by the former government. George Williams, is, is Prime Minister Albanese right? What was accountability undermined? And if so, how? Well, yes, it was at its most basic level because accountability depends upon knowledge and transparency. And here the Solicitor General uses very strong language himself. He talks about it being impossible for Parliament to hold a minister to account, to fulfil Parliament's role if you don't know a person is even a minister. And that's why the Solicitor General says that uh, this system is fundamentally undermined by what happened. And transparency is the key problem. Um, 
if you think of question time, Parliament uh, involves robust questioning of ministers, but if you don't know someone's a minister, that in this case Scott Morrison was legally obliged to administer a department, how do you ask questions? You don't even know who to direct your questions to. So the system becomes impossible to manage and those conventions which assume transparency uh, just fall away uh, where you actually have something like this occur in secret. What did the Solicitor-General have to say about the role of the Governor-General David Hurley in this process, about what he did or didn't do? Well, even though the Constitution suggests the Governor-General is a dictator, because if you look at the Constitution, the Governor-General appoints ministers, dismisses ministers, controls the army, uh, that's, of course, what the written law says, but our system's got conventions, and those conventions temper the law by saying, in practice, this is how it operates. And the most important convention in our system is that in exercising these powers, the Governor-General acts on advice, uh, in this case, the advice of the Prime Minister. And the Solicitor-General was very clear in repeating what we know well, that is that where the Prime Minister says, appoint me to a department or appoint a minister, the Governor-General must follow that. There was no discretion. Um, it wasn't a reserve power, if you like, an emergency situation where the Governor-General could act contrary to the advice. And so here, the Solicitor-General said, well, the Governor-General did what he was told. Um, and uh, in essence, if you want a different system, we've well, got to change it. You, you can't expect the Governor-General to act outside the system within which he must operate. Could he have asked more probing questions, especially, you know, the second, third, fourth and, and fifth times? Are you telling those affected? Are you making this public? He could have. Uh, and even though there's no discretion, it's well accepted that the Governor-General has a, has a role to advise and warn, um, to say, Mr Prime Minister, have you thought carefully about this? Um, is there a better way? Is this necessary? And the advice doesn't go into those matters. It seems by implication probably that did not occur, but we can't say for sure because it hasn't been categorically ruled out. And it may be in this case the Governor-General didn't pick up that these hadn't been made public. After all, it looks like this was just done on the papers. We're in the middle of an emergency, a pandemic. Uh, so the most likely is it didn't occur because the Governor-General just wasn't aware of it and didn't think to do so. And that might also explain why the Governor-General's office is keen to participate in an inquiry to improve these mechanisms. Perhaps we need a way of bringing this to his attention so that these things can't slip through the system in secret. And what does the Solicitor-General's advice have to say about the role of the public service in this process, specifically, say, the, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, who would have been involved in, in this to some degree? Well, and there's very limited information here as to actually how they were involved. And if there is a follow-on inquiry, I suspect we'll find more about that. And, of course, they're the ones who would have needed to draft the paperwork. They're the ones who perhaps should have been fully aware of these conventions of responsible government. We don't know what they did or didn't do. More generally, though, we know that uh, this, again, is a failing not just for Parliament, for the public service, because we had uh, the Prime Minister appointed to all these ministries but the secretaries of those departments weren't made aware. Um, they weren't made aware that a second person could exercise, say, the really enormous powers under the Biosecurity Act. So it's also described as a fundamental breakdown between minister and department. And uh, again, how can a department do their job without even knowing who can direct them in the exercise of the ministerial powers? Okay, so there's a 29-page um, advice. What sorts of transparency reforms does the Solicitor-General call for to avoid this from happening again? 
Well, and the first thing to say, it's an unusual advice in that not only does the Solicitor General answer the question, but he he says that uh, this system is deficient. And so he does identify uh, fixes. At one level, you could simply change the practice. Uh, A government could say, we will, of course, spell out what needs to happen when a minister is appointed. We'll make it transparent. And not just for the former prime minister's appointment, but actually we often don't know who administers particular portfolios. There's a general lack of transparency there, a bigger problem that needs to be addressed. But the the difficulty just in changing practice is a future government could change it again in secret. They might instruct the Governor-General to again make a secret ministerial appointment. So so really the only way, and the Solicitor-General does identify this, is we need Parliament itself to to legislate for transparency, a law that leaves no doubt, no wiggle room, and it simply needs to say that when a minister is appointed, as soon as possible, that must be communicated to the Parliament and the people. And uh, there must not be any exceptions to that because, again, it's just such a basic rule of our system that that should occur. So it looks like we will probably get legislation. We don't know, but that looks like where we're heading. At the press conference, the Prime Minister announced that he intends to also launch an inquiry into these ministerial appointments. He says he and his Cabinet will consider what form it should take, and he he says he'll be looking most likely at someone with, with a serious legal background to undertake the inquiry. And they'll look at um, you know what happened, what are the implications of what happened, and and whether or not there are any legal issues that um, might be raised by these appointments. Before we come back to that point about legal issues, what form do you think the inquiry should take? Do you think it should be an eminent legal person, or do you think perhaps better uh, sort of a, a joint parliamentary inquiry? And I, th- I think firstly, an inquiry is needed. I mean, what we have is a legal advice um, saying what happened, but there's a lot still to come out. And the legal advice doesn't go into much detail about the fixes. And so we need a a proper process to identify how we can make sure this precedent doesn't stick and that we have a better system in the future. My own preference actually would be to start with a parliamentary inquiry rather than an eminent person, because at its most basic level, it's about respect for parliament, parliament fulfilling its function uh, in responsible government to act as a check upon ministers. And I'd like to see an inquiry involving senators and members of the House of Representatives so Parliament itself can assert its proper role in this area. And the fact that this issue is now being broadly supported for reform by the opposition, the government and others would give you some hope that there'd be a sensible multi-party solution that with Parliament leading an inquiry, it also really emphasise that Parliament itself is making clear what the road rules need to be. Should that kind of inquiry also focus on the, the subtleties of the response of the Governor General uh, here, and and um, if it does so, um, should the Governor General stand aside while such an investigation is ongoing? No, I don't think the Governor General needs to stand aside, and uh, we've seen the paperwork which show very clearly he was instructed to act in ways that led to these appointments. And to be frank, if he hadn't acted in that way, that would have been a genuine constitutional crisis um, like we had in 1975. So the Governor-General acted as he should have done in those circumstances. That said, there's certainly room to look at process. Uh, Was the Governor-General provided with the information he needed? Did he have an opportunity to advise and warn? But these aren't matters that would have changed the outcome. But I think there's room for them to be properly looked at. The Governor-General's office says they will cooperate. 
And I think, again, there's role for Parliament to do so, to, if you like, scrutinise the actions of the executive, including the Office of Governor-General itself. That quintessentially is a role of Parliament. Now, from what we know, the only decision that Prime Minister Scott Morrison made exercising these additional uh, ministerial powers was the overriding of his resources minister on a major gas project. Um, I understand that's now before the courts. In his press conference, uh, Prime Minister Albanese said there are a lot of other question marks about uh, Prime Minister Morrison holding multiple ministries. He referred to concerns raised by the former Australia Post CEO, Christine Holgate. She questioned the independence of an investigation into her conduct um, at a time when Morrison was head of the department uh, running it. Uh, Let's just hear what he had to say. The fact that Mr Morrison was also responsible for administering departments that were shareholder responsibilities in finance, for example, is something that Christine Holgate has raised and I think raised legitimately. Now, now the Prime Minister Albanese also uh, referred to question marks about other decisions made by portfolios for which the, uh, the 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 Prime Minister Morrison what, what was minister. He, he talked to, at the press conference about you know health, so you know COVID vaccine decisions. He talked about uh, industry in the industry portfolio, the eight hundred million uh, manufacturing fund. What do you make of these kinds of uh, assertions by the Prime Minister that there are a lot of uh, question marks? Is he just throwing the squid ink out there, or, or are there, in your view, genuine questions that need to be answered? I think it's right for the inquiry to look at these types of issues because we are in uncharted waters with these secret ministerial appointments. But that's it. I think it's unlikely that they will throw up extra legal problems. And that's because there's only one apparent decision that the former Prime Minister made um, in the resources portfolio and other areas he was, if you like, lurking in the background but didn't actually exercise the powers, it seems. And it's also the case that it's common that you'll have more than one minister holding these powers. So within a portfolio area, you might have two or three ministers who overlap in their responsibilities. And that itself is not considered to be a problem. The High Court itself has recognised you can have multiple ministers holding the same powers. So I think that the real issue here is likely to be secrecy. It's less likely that it will affect some of these other decisions. Um, but of course, we can look in and see if in fact that proves to be the case. Mm. Well, well, that begs the question. I mean, w- what is the danger of having two ministers with responsibility over a single portfolio, especially, um, you know, when the minister has no idea that the, the PM also has the same power? Is it possible that, you know, this is a bad look, but it's, it's not super dangerous? And uh, I think generally it's not a problem. Let's say you have a Minister for Health, an Assistant Minister for Health, it makes sense that they will overlap and there will be areas of joint responsibility that they will demarcate between themselves and that's well known. So Parliament can question one or either. The community also understands that. So the first answer is that, in fact, transparency is, is it often the right solution to this. As long as we know who's got the powers, it's not a problem. But there is an additional issue here because of the Prime Minister and, and he, in essence, is the boss, um, and he's the person who needs to work with a cabinet in a collegiate, trusting way to double up on big portfolios like Treasury and the like, where, to be frank, there's no obvious reason that would occur to best manage the portfolio. That doesn't suggest good government. It suggests other factors are at play. And those other factors, I just think, are hard to justify in a case like this. And certainly what we've seen on the public record doesn't provide a strong reason why you would have done this and why it would have been seen as a sensible thing to do at the time. Well, we'll uh, watch the uh, 
upcoming inquiry with great interest. Uh, Professor George Williams from the University of New South Wales, leading constitutional lawyer. Look, thank you. Thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks for having me. This is The Law Report on RN, available anytime as a podcast via the wonderful ABC Listen app. I'm Damien Carrick. Search engine Google is not legally responsible for directing users to defamatory articles. In a 5-2 decision, the High Court of Australia found that the search engine is not a publisher. Instead, it simply links users to material and is not responsible for the defamatory content of those postings. University of Sydney Professor David Rolfe is one of Australia's leading experts in defamation law. David Rolfe, this dispute, it was between Google and Melbourne lawyer George Defteros. Who's George Defteros and why did he commence defamation proceedings? Defteros was a solicitor who had been representing various underworld figures and he was arrested by Victoria Police in 2004, but the charges were subsequently dropped and not pursued. But there was contemporaneous reporting of the arrest and charge in 2004 in The Age. In 2016, Defteros discovered that if you did a Google search of his name, that generated a link to the 2004 article. But obviously that didn't then refer to the subsequent dropping of the charges. And so on that basis, he raised this concern with Google. And when he didn't get satisfaction, he sued them for defamation. And when he initially did that in the Supreme Court of Victoria, I think back in 2020, he was awarded something like $40,000 in damages. Yes, that's right. So he was successful at first instance, and that decision was upheld by the Victorian Court of Appeal. And then there was the subsequent appeal to the High Court. So the High Court has overturned those two earlier decisions. It's now found in favour of Google. The major question for the High Court was, is Google a publisher? What did the majority of the High Court find when it found in favour of Google on this question? So the majority of the High Court here uh, found that Google wasn't a publisher when it generated the organic search result, which included the link to the underlying age article. And they got there by a few slightly different <laughs> different modes of reasoning. So one of the sort of major way, and this is the the view that underpins the judgment of Chief Justice Kiefel and Justice Gleeson, and also to a certain extent, Justice Gaekler's judgment, the idea was that where you provide a a hyperlink, then that really operates just as a sort of mere mere reference without much more. Um, You also see a similar sort of approach in part of the reasoning in the other majority judgment of Justices Edelman and Stewart. So the idea is that where a Google organic search result from generated by Google includes a hyperlink to another page, that doesn't involve Google actually publishing that hyperlink. There needs to be the independent act of uh, the user clicking on that link and going to that other page. And that's not considered to be an act of participation in the publication of that underlying article or assistance in facilitating access to that either. So what we really sort of see here is a sort of an example of what doesn't constitute publication for the purposes of defamation. 
So we have this five to two decision, the High Court found in favour of Google. How did the majority distinguish this case, Google and Defteros, from another recent uh, High Court of Australia defamation case, Dylan Voller? R- remind us who is Dylan Voller and, and what that defamation action was that he won. So Dylan Voller was the young man who was at the centre of the Four Corners expose into the Northern Territory Juvenile Detention Centre. And so he was very famously shown in that Four Corners story in a spit hood and restraining chair in Dondale. He was then the subject of reporting, media, extensive media reporting, and a number of media outlets, including major news organisations, Fairfax and Nationwide News, posted non-defamatory stories about Dylan Voller on their Facebook pages. And the comments were left open, and so there were third-party comments in response to those stories. And a substantial number of those third-party comments were alleged to be defamatory of Voller. So Voller sues the media outlets in respect of the third-party comments. And so the question, which was a separate question that went all the way to the High Court, was whether the media outlets there were publishers of the third-party comments. And the High Court, by majority, another 5-2 split, found that the media outlets there were publishers of those third-party comments. And that was because the publishers encouraged, facilitated, assisted in the publication of the defamatory comments on their Facebook page. Yes, that's right. So by providing the forum, by posting that material and encouraging people to comment, which was the very purpose of putting those articles up on their public Facebook pages, the media outlets were held to be publishers of those third-party comments. And so the majority distinguished that finding of defamation in in Dylan Voller from what Google did in Deftros because they said what? It it was simply people searched his name, they'd find this article. They weren't encouraging or facilitating or assisting the the publication of the original article. Yes, that's right. So this wasn't a facilitation. It was merely providing a hyperlink. And so I suppose one of the things to be sort of clear about in relation to Deftros is that on its face, the snippet itself wasn't defamatory. So you couldn't tell the defamatory material from the link or from the snippet. And so a reader would actually have to click through to that. And so the analogy here was more to providing references in a, in a book. You know, you couldn't in every case assume that the reader would necessarily click on every link just as when someone reads a book with references there's no expectation that the reader would actually follow up for themselves each and every reference. And so the analogy here that was drawn in Defteros was that, you know, the link hyperlink provided in the snippet was more closely analogous to a footnote or a reference in a book and less like the scenario that you have in Vola where the non-defamatory article is there as a sort of stimulus And people can sort of respond to that. The notion of the respective facilitation here was considered to be different. How significant is this ruling in Deftros and Google? It certainly clarifies the law in relation to organic search results. And I think it's now fairly clear that an organic search result, which includes a hyperlink, which is not on its face defamatory, is not capable of exposing Google to liability for any defamatory material contained in the hyperlinked material. 
the High Court, I think, expressly sets to one side the position of sponsored search results. So that is not, I think, covered by the High Court's judgment. But what's interesting is that the impact of this may go beyond Google and Google's publications themselves. So because a number of the judgments rely on Canadian authority to the effect that the provision of a hyperlink on a web page doesn't amount to a publication of the hyperlinked material because that's relied upon to reach the conclusion in this particular case. The decision of the High Court in Defteros might be, in fact, a broader application beyond Google search results to the provision of hyperlinks in other contexts. What other contexts are there? Not via Google, but via any kind of hyperlink. In the Canadian Authority, a person had a web page and provided hyperlinks to that. And so, of course, people provide hyperlinks in all kinds of scenarios. So, you know, if you tweet and you include a link and, you know, your tweet is not defamatory, but the underlying linked content is defamatory, there's, I think, at least an argument here from the reasoning of the High Court here that that sort of content neutral provision of that link doesn't mean that the person who tweets that link is responsible for the underlying linked material if that linked material is defamatory. So that's quite a significant legal principle that's been established here. Well, yes, I think there's a bit, I think there is still a bit more though to sort of think through and work through it in, in this case. I think the, the central point which I think is settled by it though is, you know, that an organic search result by Google, which includes a hyperlink, is not a publication of the hyperlinked material. But certainly I think there are potential applications of that reasoning beyond that that scenario. On the tweet point, presumably you, you'll, you'll have read something before you retweet it. Does your knowledge of what is in the article, perhaps the defamatory content that is within it, does that put you in a different position from a Google algorithm which is simply responding to a search? Well, retweeting might be in a different position from providing a hyperlink because a fundamental principle of defamation law is that if you republish in a sort of lay sense something that has been provided by someone else, you're a publisher of that republished material. What we're sort of really talking about here is a sort of content-neutral inclusion of a hyperlink. And, of course, this, I think, throws up some of the difficulties of the sort of distinctions that are being drawn in some of the judgments in Devteros that on sort of conventional approaches to publication, any communication of defamatory matter is a separate as a publication and is a separate cause of action. And so the distinction between retweeting somebody else's content and then providing a hyperlink to another source, to another page, there's, I think, a very good argument that those sorts of things look like each other. But I think one of the consequences of the High Court's decision is that the hyperlink situation is now probably now treated somewhat differently. So maybe somebody's going to come back to um, the High Court with, with a, a different kind of uh, problem about one of those uh, hyperlinks. Oh, yes. Look, I think, I mean, I think the problem is that the sorts of scenarios that are going to be increasingly presented by sort of new and emerging technologies will require constant reapplication, if not rethinking of the principles of publication. The High Court has emphasised on a number of occasions now, both in Vola and Defteros, that the principles of publication are settled, but 
what might present difficulty is their application to new scenarios. And I think that's that's what we're seeing increasingly as we litigate those sorts of cases before courts. University of Sydney Professor David Rolfe, one of Australia's leading experts in defamation. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. And that's The Law Report for this week. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and to technical producer this week, Matthew Crawford. Don't forget The Law Report is available anytime as a podcast via the ABC Listen app. Talk to you next time with more law. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.